Father God, we want to thank you that we're able to come into your presence. We thank you, Lord, that you have given an incredible gift to our church. We pray that you'll help us to understand what that gift means. Please guide our thinking. Help us to see that uh, we have an adequate defense for our faith. We pray now, Lord, that you will give us uh, understanding of your will for our lives. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, the question we're asking is, Ellen White, did she have the gift of prophecy? And if there's any technical person who can help me try and get that uh, projector working, we'll do that. So I'm just, I'm just going to go ahead because I don't see the, uh, the connection. Does God work with His people in a special way when there are unique events? Do we have any example from Scripture of where God particularly stepped in and sent a special message before particular periods of time? So this is an interactive seminar. Do we have any indications of that? Does God especially reveal His plans? Where would we go in Scripture to find this basic concept? All right, Exodus. What happened in Exodus? Moses and the burning bush. God reveals himself before a dramatic deliverance of his people. Very good. Where else do we go? Noah. Before there's a flood coming, he he specifically reveals himself to Noah before the flood comes. Where else? John the Baptist. John the Baptist, before Jesus comes, God reveals himself to John. There's a special message. So what we have is throughout periods of time, we have Elijah, we have Elisha. Before there's a judgment from God or before there's a deliverance of God's people, God specifically reveals himself through a prophet. So it would not be unusual if at the end of time, as we transition to what in Daniel is called the time of the end, if we would have a prophet that God reveals himself to. The question we're going to be asking is, was Ellen White that prophet? If we go to Amos 3 verse 7, Amos 3 verse 7, Amos 3 verse 7, if someone would would like to read that for us, nice, loud and clear, Amos 3 and verse 7. All right, so God will do nothing unless He reveals His secrets unto His servants, who are the prophets. So the, the clear principle of Scripture is this. Before God undertakes a major event, He will reveal it to His servants, the prophets. We believe we live in the time of the end. Before the time of the end, we will clearly have a description of uh, or a, a re- revelation of God to His prophets. So what about prophets? I mean, have, how many of you think that everybody's a prophet? All right. Well, you're not charismatic. That's why. <laughs> there are people who believe that there are lots of prophets. There are prophets everywhere. They seem to be modern prophets everywhere. But is this justifiable? Well, some people say that the gift of prophecy ended with the apostles, that the last time the gift of prophecy was used was actually with the apostles. So how many of you would believe that? Uh, Probably not if you're an Adventist. You believe that the gift of prophecy has continued. Is there a biblical basis for this understanding that while not everybody is a prophet, 
that the gift of prophecy would continue in God's church to the end of time. Is there a good biblical basis for that understanding? If so, where would we go? Do you know where the cable is for it? He's going to go get one. Good. All right, where would we go? Ephesians chapter 4, verse 8. Ephesians 4, verse 8 clearly identifies that this gift of prophecy would continue in the church right up until the end of time. So let's see if we can find that in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 8. All right, let's get somebody to read that for us. Uh, Before he saith, when he ascendeth up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. All right, so let's just pause right there. It says he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. So we have to ask, what were these gifts? What are the gifts that he gave? And, and it numbers or some of them. What do we have? Just, just bounce some of them back to me. We, gift of apostles, right? So we know the word apostle simply means one who is sent. And people are still sent today, although we don't have the unique 12 apostles that we had back then. And then he gave some prophets and some evangelists. Do we still have evangelists today? I sure hope so. At least a few still work for Amazing Facts. That's where I used to work. Some, what else do we have? Pastors and some teachers. So we have all of these different gifts, and he's given this to various people, and how long would these gifts remain in the church? How long are they going to be in the church? It says, yeah, for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ till we all come into the unity of the faith. Do you think that's happened yet? Do you think we still need teachers and pastors and evangelists? Do you think we still need the gift of prophecy? Absolutely. So what we discover, first of all, is that the gift of prophecy is something that continues to be needed until the end of time. And it says, until we come to a perfect man, until the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. What, what does that mean? What is the purpose of the gift of prophecy? What is the purpose of all of these gifts? What does it say from the text? Till, till we reach perfection, what is perfection? Be like to be like Christ. Very good. So that's a great definition of perfection you should keep in case anyone ever asks you. What does it mean to be perfect? To be like Christ. All right, Acts chapter 2, verse 17. Do we see a clear understanding that the gift of prophecy would be occurring at the end of time? Now, Peter believed that this was occurring in his day, but that was just a partial fulfillment. And, he, and we'll discover why. Acts chapter 2 and verse 17. Uh, Jason, you want to read that for me? All right, so when does this come to pass? In the last days. So when we discover Pentecost, did the whole, was the Holy Spirit poured out? Do we have evidence that at that time the uh, things were happening, there were dreams, there were visions, there were prophecies? Do we have that happening right after Pentecost? We actually we, we have prophecies taking place, but it is not yet the final fulfillment. Why? Because it says it shall come to pass when? In the last days. Now, all right, we'll move over here. It says it will come to pass in the last days. Now, we know that this refers to the very last days, to the end of time. 
Did Peter think he was living in the last days? He did. So he believed that this had come to pass right in his time. And that's going to be important for when we look at uh, Ellen White later. But for right now, recognize that even then, right in the middle of this, Peter believed it's true, but it's not yet fully true. It refers to the end of time, and there will be the Holy Spirit poured out again and unique visions. So how can we tell the difference then between a true gift of prophecy and a false kind of set of prophecy? How are we going to know? So... What would you do? You know, it's the famous illustration. If you had... Has anyone ever seen a $13 bill? Anyone ever seen it? You, you, have you ever seen a counterfeit $13 bill? Why not? Because uh, there's no $13 bill. We just showed... If there's no $13 bill, why would you build a counterfeit? Can you imagine walking into the bank? Hi, you know, uh, I'd like to, uh, to put this $13 bill in. You, what would happen? Just hold on, I have a phone call to make. (laughs) And uh, you'd quickly uh, get free food and lodging on behalf of the state. So so you need to be able to, if you're going to have a counterfeit, you must have a true. Why is it that there is so much false prophecy out there? What do you think it is? Why does the devil focus so much on creating false prophets? Because to distract us from the true. The very fact that you have the, the counterfeit means there must be a true. So if devil wouldn't make a counterfeit $13 bill, instead he makes something that looks like the real thing, but it isn't. And that's why Jesus warns us against the counterfeit. He knew that the counterfeit would come up to counteract the true. This is what he says, Matthew 24, verse 5, For many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. Is that happening? Yes, and many false prophets shall arise and deceive many. Do you know who these two men are? Down here? Jim Jones up there? I forget his name, but Heaven's Gate. You remember what happened where they all committed suicide? They thought they'd be transported up into a portal into heaven. And uh, I I think um, uh, they're still there. All right. So this is what, he, what Christ says, For there shall arise false Christs and false prophets, and shall show great signs and wonders, insomuch that, if it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect. Now, based on the principle that we've covered, that God will do nothing without revealing His secrets unto His servants, the prophets, do you believe that God would let us get sucked into this without providing a prophet? I mean, would that make sense? So the very fact that there's a counterfeit to me says that there must be an original. Now, you've seen all of the, the, the counterfeit stuff that's out there. Uh, you know, inside the heaven gates, mass suicide, Nostradamus, astrology in the White House. You know, who are they listening to? Do people follow, follow the astrology in the White House and all of those kinds of things? Newsweek, prophecy, what the Bible says about the end of the world. And you notice how they have... Uh, these really interesting kinds of pictures. And we thought Adventists were exciting with their illustrations. Uh, You know, Gene Dixon, a gift of prophecy. I mean, that's what it's actually entitled. The phenomenal Gene Dixon, one million copies sold. Uh, you've, You've all seen, you know, call now the psychic hotline. I love what Doug Batchelor has to say, you know, why don't you call them up one day? And then when they ask for your credit card, you can just say to them, well, look, you're the psychic. You tell me what the credit card number is. <laughs> so 
So, you know, these things obviously are not the true gift of prophecy, and we just know that we, we can eliminate those things. We don't have to spend much time. We want to go to the biblical tests of a true prophet. So here they are. I want to give them to you. Uh, nothing too remarkable in many ways, but if you have to go and present to a non-Adventist why you believe that Ellen White had the gift of prophecy, you want to be able to do it from the Bible, from the biblical tests. So the first one, very simple prophetic accuracy. Does what the, bio, what the prophet predicts, does it come to pass? Where do we find that? Where do we find that? Well, very good. Jeremiah chapter 28 and verse 9. The prophet which prophesieth of peace, when the word of the prophet shall come to pass, then shall the prophet be known that the Lord has, sent, has truly sent him. Now, we're going to provide a qualifying mark to that in just a moment. But for right now, we want to say, look, if, if they're prophesying things and it doesn't come to pass, what are they? Probably a false prophet. We, we, we're going to qualify that in just a moment. For instance, psychics. Uh, in one study, out of 250 specific published predictions, we found less than 3%, i.e. 6, that we could list as reasonably fulfilled, and 97% that missed the mark completely. So if you're going to the horoscopes, and if you're going down to the psychic hotlines, whatever they tell you, there's a 97% chance they're wrong. So I guess this is one way of finding out the future. Whatever they tell you, you just say it must be the other thing. So I guess that's one way to do it. But obviously that's not the biblical way. This is not a biblical prophet. So in addition to prophetic accuracy, what they say, and I'm going to come back to Ellen White and, and look at her in terms of these, but whatever they say, if it must come to pass. However, you have to add in the concept of biblical faithfulness. To the law and to the testimony, Isaiah 8 verse 20, if they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. By the way, does anybody know the context of this verse? We always quote this as Adventists. Does anyone know the context? Yeah. <laughs> All right, Kevin, what is it? See, uh, it, it the, the context is to whom does one seek for counsel? Seek not, right. the, the first exactly. Says, seek unto them when they shall say unto you, seek unto them that hath, fami hath familiar spirits and unto wizards that peep and that mutter, should, go, should not God's people seek, you know, from the, for the living to the dead. The, the, the point is, to whom do we, do we seek for God? Exactly. It is within the context of spiritualism. It, do you go to those who speak to the dead, or do you go to the living God and His Word? And so when you've got these two possibilities, where are you going to go? I wish we had half light, but I guess this, uh, we, it's either we're fully in the dark or fully in the light. All right, there's a principle in there. So, so uh, what this is saying is, do you go to what God has already revealed, or are you going to accept a new revelation that comes from the spiritual world. Now, this is critical these days because I have found a large number of people who are beginning to say, you know what the Spirit says to me personally is more important than what I read in the Bible. In fact, the Spirit has to interpret what the Bible says. And so there's this whole new uh, theology. It's, it's sometimes called Rhema theology that the word in the Bible doesn't become 
the true word of God until the Holy Spirit speaks it to me. And while there's a, a certain truth that the Holy Spirit has to apply to my heart, people are starting to reinterpret Scripture, and they'll take an arbitrary verse and say, this verse now means that I must marry this person or go and take on this job. Are you following the line of thinking? So there's a great danger. I believe what this is telling us, the biblical test is, you go back to the Bible and don't try and, and twist the Bible. Let the Bible speak for itself. If they speak not according to this word, it is because there's no light in them. Now, there is uh, even a condition on true fulfilled prophecies. Because can, can the devil predict the future? Yes. Yeah, he's pretty good. How does the devil predict the future? It's not because he has you know, uh, the ability to foresee the future. How does he predict the future? He it. Well, A, he can create it. He can cause it. B, does he have supernatural power yes. to influence? Yes. C, my wife can predict what I am going to do before I do it. <laughs> she knows my nature. She knows what my habits are in the morning. She knows that I, I have a tendency to throw socks in the wrong place. She knows these things. And so she can predict them. How does she do it? Because she knows me so well. So the devil is able to make accurate predictions about the future, and he cannot be trusted. So this is... This is the one element you have to add, Deuteronomy 13, verse 1, to fulfilled predictions. If there arise among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams and giveth thee a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder come to pass, whereof he spoke to you, saying, Let's go after other gods which thou hast not known, and let us serve them. Thou shalt not hearken unto the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God proveth you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. So what are we saying in here is that even though somebody may come up with a true prediction, and, but they're saying something that's out of harmony with the Bible, should you follow them? No. Now, if Ellen White contradicted the Bible, I would say throw her out. Is that fair enough? Throw her out. Now, quick question. Are all of the prophets who were in Bible times, do, do we have evidence of all of their writings in the Bible? No. Can you give me examples? Can you give me examples of prophets whose writings are not in the Bible? Elijah. Elijah. Anyone read the book of Elijah lately? No, because <laughs> it's not there. Uh, any other examples? Nathan, very good. We just have snippets of what he said to David. Great parable. I wish, wish we could have had his other sermons, you know, but we don't. It's not written in there. Anyone else? John the Baptist. John the Baptist preached these great sermons. Whole, you know, the whole city is brought to revival, but, uh, you know, we don't have what he wrote down in the Bible. So there we have Elijah, John the Baptist. Not all of God's prophets are Bible writers. So just the fact that you have a prophet who's not in the Bible canon, does that mean that they're not a prophet? No. So there is a distinction. God has especially preserved the Bible canon. You know what we, we mean by the canon? The authoritative writings of the Bible. He's, he's, he's preserved that in the Bible. And I believe other prophets build up the Bible, but they never take away from it.
Uh, here's another example of uh, people who are prophets in the New Testament. And in these days came prophets from Jerusalem unto Antioch. And they stood up one of them named Agabus and signified by the Spirit that there should be a great dearth or famine throughout all the world. And so we know that there was this great famine and it was throughout all the world and it did happen. Is he recorded anywhere in the Bible other than here? No. So prophets uh, did prophesy, they did say things, but it was not always recorded in the Bible. It was not always seen even as at the same standard as the other scriptures. All right, biblical tests of a true prophet. What have we said? Number one, if the prophet says it, it must come to pass. Very good. Secondly, we've said if the prophet speaks, it must be in harmony with the Bible or the Word of God. Thirdly, we see very clearly that they must exalt Jesus. Beloved, believe not every spirit, 1 John 4 verse 1, but try the spirits whether they are of God. Because many false prophets are gone out into the world. So, what is going to be his test? You know what the word try means? What's another word for try? Test. Very good. So, what's going to be his test? Hereby know ye the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. Of course, back at that time, there was a heresy that was operating. Does anyone know what it was called? Uh, no, that's later on. <laughs> there was, but it's connected kind of with that. Anyone know what the heresy was operating at the time when John wrote this? Gnosticism. There was a heresy called Gnosticism. And basically, uh, a version of Gnosticism was that Jesus was more mystical, that he had not actually come in the flesh, he just appeared to come in the flesh. And so John writes against this and he says, look, Jesus didn't just come, he came in the flesh. The whole point he's saying is that a true prophet is going to lift up Jesus and exalt him before the world. And that's indeed what a true prophet does. They point to Jesus Christ. They say Jesus is the one who died for us in the flesh. His death takes away our sin. They continuously lift up Jesus and the cross of Christ. Fourth test of a true prophet. Fourth test of a true prophet. They keep the commandments. How do we know that? And when we look at 1 John chapter 3, verse 4, what does it say? It says, sin, what is sin? Is the transgression of the law. What's another word for tr transgression of the law? Breaking the law. It, uh, the original word there is anomia, which means lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. It is rebellion. If I can translate it, it is rebellion against the law of God. Would a prophet engage in rebellion against God's law? Can you imagine that? Where one of God's prophets would rebel against God's law? Not at all. So if we want to see uh, whether Ellen White's gift is biblical, we're going to have to follow this part where she keeps the commandments. She would not rebel against the law of God. Then physical tests. Uh, and we're going to cover certain things, and I, uh, I wish we had more light. Numbers 24, verse 4. Numbers 24, verse 4. We're just going to look. There's a, a few key things. Does anyone know Numbers 24, who it's dealing with? Who is the prophet? Anyone want to guess? Who? Balaam. Balaam. Yes, very good. And one of the things it says about Balaam is it uses a key term to say that he was in a trance kind of thing, but his eyes were open. 
So one of the things we can expect is when they're in vision, uh, their eyes will be open. At least that's what happened with Balaam. And there's a very clear indication in this text, his eyes remained open. Then Daniel, we go across to Daniel. Daniel has a vision. He says, I had no strength in me. So there's a certain sign, there's a physical occurrence that takes place. And so we believe in vision, prophets have no physical strength based on Daniel's experience. He says, two times there, I had no strength. The strength was gone from me. Daniel 10 verses 8 and 17. Uh, And then also in Daniel 10 verse 17, we see that uh, prophets and vision do not breathe. There's at least, there was no breath in him. That's, that's what it literally says. There was no breath in me. And so again, we're going to come back to, does Ellen White exhibit these same things? Now again, we have to beware. Matthew 7 verse 15. Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. So we've got to distinguish between the true and the false prophets. How are we going to know? This is what Jesus goes on to say. He says, you shall know them. Thank you. That's going to make life uh, a little easier for light. You shall know them by their fruits. All right. Do men gather grapes or thorns or figs or thistles? So how are you going to know a true prophet from a false prophet? How are you going to know it? By their fruits. So what would you expect would be the fruit of a prophet? Let's ask that question. What would be the fruit of a prophet? They, they're going to live their lives in accordance with God's words. Are they going to be sleeping around? Are they going to have multiple wives? Oh, by the way, who does that eliminate? <laughs> All right, so it's not going to be Joseph Smith. Are they going to have a lifestyle incompatible with the life that Christ lived? Not at all. So you expect the same fruits. What are the fruits of the Spirit? Since this is prophecy is, is one of the gifts of the Spirit. What's the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, all of those things. And you would expect to see that in the life of the prophets. Wherefore, by their fruits, Jesus says, ye shall know them. Look at the fruits of the life. Don't just look at isolated things. Look at the overall picture of the fruits of their life. So here are the six tests that we want to go through now and apply to Ellen White. And then uh, I'm going to open up for questions. We want to take these six tests and apply them to Ellen White. So first test, prophetic accuracy. Second test, biblical faithfulness. Third test, exalt Jesus. Fourth test, do they keep the commandments? Fifth test, uh, do, they, do they follow the physical test that we see in Scripture? Last test, does their fruit show that they are followers of God? All right. Before we get there, however, I would like us to take a look at the overall view of a biblical prophet. What do we think of when we think of the word prophet? What comes to mind? Yes, but you're jumping ahead to a more uh, theological definition, which is good. Someone who predicts. That's what we, isn't that what we like? When uh, Jean Dixon says a gift of prophecy, when she has that on that book, what is, uh, what is thought of by that? She can predict the future. So we often have a very narrow view of Bible prophets. But we discover that the Bible prophets, predominantly their main thing was that they were involved in speaking for God. Now, Ellen White didn't generally like people to refer to her as a prophet. Did you know that? Why not? Does anyone know the reason? 
Well, she says, I'm a messenger, which sounds very similar to this, right? Speaking for God. But she also used it because she says so many people are using the word prophet to describe all these false movements that in order not to be seen as a false prophet, she avoided the word prophet altogether. You understand? It's not because she, she didn't believe that God had given her a special gift, but it was because so many other people were using this term in the wrong way. She says, I don't like to use this term because other people had hijacked the language. So the work of a prophet spoke for God, but also revealed God's purposes. This is what God is trying to do here. This is how they're involved here. They strengthened and guided leaders like Nathan, who somebody brought up Nathan earlier. Uh, Nathan goes and speaks to David. He guides him. He gives him advice. He strengthens him. We find this as part of the work of the prophet, like Samuel, working with the uh, kings and the people. They encouraged people to faithfulness. They wrote letters. They, they, they spoke to people. Was, did Paul act as a prophet at times? Yeah, he did. Did he write letters of encouragement to the churches? He did. He just. Uh, we often pe- put people into one category, but Paul at times, uh, acted in the role of a prophet, and he encouraged people. Preaching and teaching. We find prophets getting up and preaching sermons and teaching the people. Uh, sometimes they were living demonstrations. Anyone remember somebody who, who's a famous prophet for acting out his sermons? He did a little bit, but he spent a lot of time crying. Uh, <laughs> that was Jeremiah. Anyone remember? Ezekiel. Yeah, Ezekiel. Ezekiel spent a lot of time uh, acting his, his sermons out. I mean, he, he got involved. He had to spend so many days on one side and so many days lying on another side and eating kinds of things that we won't refer to right now. So he, he really had to live out his sermons. Then bringing others to a knowledge of truth, they would actively go out. Was John the Baptist a prophet? Did he bring people to repentance? Yes, he, he was an evangelist and uh, not just a prophet. And so we find that the work of a prophet is much broader than just predicting the future. So what about Ellen White? Was Ellen White's gift in harmony with these biblical mandates? And of course, I know that you know the answer. Why am I giving this to an answer when most of you already know what it is? Because you're going to come up against these questions, and I want you to be able to defend it, from the Bible, from what the Bible says. Numbers 12, verse 6 and 8. And he said, Hear now my words. If there be a prophet among you, I, the Lord, will make myself known unto him in a... Can you read that there? Vision, and will speak unto him in a... Dream. It seems that Ellen White received a tremendous amount of visions and dreams. Sometimes less than we expect in terms of visions. Does anyone know about how many visions Ellen White received? If you add in dreams, if you add in specific dreams that gave her content, then it would be about 2,000. If you look just at visions, direct visions, the number, although there's, there's some discussion about this, the number is closer to 200. So in terms of direct visions, and then if you add in dreams, it's about 2,000. So yes, Received more than 2,000 prophetic visions and dreams. She wrote over 50 books, so that's a huge amount. Now, the challenge with her writing so much is, guess what? 
Well, we, we're going to come to that uh, discussion of plagiarism. But the fact is, if, you, if I had written 50 books and somebody wanted to go and shoot me down, and there's so much material out there, could they grab enough in there that they could probably make an argument against me? Yeah, so there's just so much material that, uh, well, it's all wonderful material. It means that uh, it's easy to pick apart because there's just such a volume to draw from that you can make apparent contradictions. She lectured to thousands on three continents, so she was a well-known speaker. Uh, this is what George Wharton James says, uh, page 319 of his book. This remarkable woman, though almost entirely self-educated, has written and published more books in more languages which circulate to the great extent than any other woman in history. Now, unfortunately, that has been taken over uh, by, guess who? Harry Potter. Harry Potter. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, unfortunately, the devil's been working hard to overcome that record. All right, so let's go ahead and apply these gifts, prophetic accuracy. Is what Ellen White predicted, did it come true? There's so much that we could take a look at. Some of the most powerful ones for me are the health ones. So I'm, I'm going to give you a little bit of that. And if you, want, if you manage to get into Don McIntosh's seminars at all, he has a little more on this. I'm just going to give a quick overview. Uh, tobacco is a slow, insidious, but most malignant poison. Now, how did she know this? At the time when they were advocating that if you had a lung disease, you should smoke because it was going to help you improve your lungs. I mean, can you believe how wrong the science was? But the medical doctors prescribed smoking for lung disease. You know, they should have been shot, but it's too late. We actually have posters. I, I meant to bring some, but I, I forgot to. Uh, posters where you've got them advertising smoking, and it's, got, it's been advertised by a medical doctor, and he's putting up... He's putting up uh, his little MD sign while he's got a cigarette in his mouth and it's advertising smoking. And that's back from the 1920s. Ellen White wrote about this before anyone had any idea that smoking was bad for you. What about influences on the unborn child? Back then, no one had any idea that you could influence an unborn child. It was safe. But Ellen White said, no, you can influence an unborn child. And medical science has only proved that right in the last 25 years or so. And so it's amazing how Ellen White was able to be so accurate in her medical descriptions. In fact, uh, at Cornell University, they were using the book Councils on Diet and Health as one of their textbooks uh, for their classes for a while because it was so accurate in what it said about medicine. And so we, this is the strange thing. When the world as a whole is starting to look to things that Ellen White is saying and say, this is phenomenal, this is amazing, what are Adventists doing? We're throwing it overboard. You know, as if, as if she's irrelevant, she has nothing to say. But medical science is proving over and over again, the things that Ellen White said are true. Now some people are going to say, yes, but there were some other people at the same time as her who were saying some of these things. Well, What's amazing about Ellen White is not that she was unique in what she said. Are you all following? It's not that she was unique in what she said. It's that she was able to discern the true from the garbage. Because some of what these other people were saying, these other medical uh, people or alternative medicine people, some of the things that they were saying were absolute garbage. And she was able to discern between what was true 
and what was false in an amazing way. One of the things, how could she have known that cancer, she says, is caused, caused by a germ? Now, she didn't have a word for virus, but only lately, only in the last few decades, have we discovered that cancer can be caused by a virus. Back then, people would have said, that's ridiculous. She was able to make this accurate prediction that uh, how else could it have been true unless God had been helping her. She wasn't a medical doctor, and yet she foresaw these things. And our diet. I mean, back then, people just ate whatever they wanted to eat. And it's only lately that we've started to move away from the American diet, where you just eat all kinds of milk and sugar and fatty foods and dead animals and that kind of thing. And she, predict, she said, no, look, this is the diet. In fact, she receives a vision to let go of meat long before she even is ready for it. You know what I'm saying? She didn't even want to give up meat. And she gets this vision, you've got to become a vegetarian, and she, she gives up meat. Now, did Ellen White... Oh, this is, I'm getting ahead of myself here. Did Ellen White ever, meet, ever eat meat again after her vision? She did. She did. Why did she do it? I mean, that was a shock for me, you know. I had I'd become vegan. I was uh, praising the Lord for it. And then I discovered Ellen White had eaten meat after she had received a vision. How could she do that? Well, I'm speaking from my, my 20th century point of view where I'm, you know, I can go into uh, you know, the village market here in Happy Valley and, and I can buy any kinds of foods that I want, right? But if I was living out in the frontier and, and in various places like in Australia where there were almost no fruits and vegetables available, and it was either eat meat or die, are you following me? Then I would be in that tough kind of situation. What is the healthiest thing to do? Are, you understand what, what, what happened back then? So, so what happened is for a while, Ellen White... And I'll, I'll come to that in a moment. For a while, Ellen White, in extreme circumstances, would allow the use of meat on her table. But while she was over in Australia, she said, she came to a point where she said, you know what, even though there are times when, when kind of I've allowed meat on the table, I've now reached a point where I'm determined again that I will not even serve meat. And she became... She became uh, she wouldn't even allow, not only she'd become a vegetarian, she wouldn't allow meat to be served off of her table. And when she came back from Australia, that was her stance when she came and lived at Elmshaven. So there was a period of time, extremely difficult circumstances, where she allowed meat to be served, but that was due to the situation at that time. Does anyone have any questions on that before I, I go on? I, I didn't shock, shock you too much, I hope. I'm just saying she was very practical in her counsel, but she predicted a diet way ahead of her time, and that has just been proved over and over again today. This is the best kind of diet. Can he, has anyone improved on this diet? That she was, she, you know, she was saying this kind of stuff has to go. All right. Now, what about the fact that Ellen White may have made some predictions about um, things that didn't come to pass? And we're going to cover some of those in the, next, in the next lecture. In the next lecture, we're going to look at some of those things. One of those is, uh, did she make prophecies about the future? Did they come to pass? Uh, let me give you an example. In 1856, 
she looked out at a crowd and she said, and, and she, she said, I was shown that there are going to be some here who will turn to worms and some that will live to see Jesus when he comes in the clouds kind of thing. And so was she right or wrong on some of these things? And well, those people died. So it seems like she was wrong. But we have to recognize the nature of conditional prophecy. So let's take a look at a few texts to see how this operates. Jeremiah chapter 18 and verses 7 through to 10. Jeremiah chapter 18 and verses 7 through to 10. Jeremiah chapter 18 and verses 7 through to 10. This tells the story of Jeremiah going down to the... Where is he going to? He goes to see something, beginning of Jeremiah chapter 18. He's going down to the potter's house. Very good. He goes down to the potter's house. Remarkable story. Because the potter is busy shaping this pot. And uh, there's a defect in it. And so he doesn't throw the pot away. Powerful illustration. He doesn't throw the pot away when there's a defect in the pot. What does he do? He reshapes it, which is phenomenal because if anyone's ever done pottery, is clay very expensive? No. No, it's not expensive at all. What would you do if there was a defect in the clay? You throw it away, you start over again. That's what you do. But the potter doesn't do that. Instead, he reshapes the pot around the defect. I don't know exactly how he does it, but he reshapes the pot. He says, look, the very weakest points of our lives, the very parts where we've gone against God, where we've messed up. He says, look, I'm going to reshape myself around whatever this is, and I'm going to turn your weakness into strength. Did he do that with Paul? Absolutely. His, His very part where he had seemed to have rejected God became one of his greatest testimonies. So God says, I'm going to reshape you. I'm going to reform you. And he begins to reshape him and reform him. And and he says, this is what I want to do with your house of Israel. I'm going to turn you into a new pot in spite of all of your mistakes. And then he goes on to explain how conditional prophecy works. So would someone like to read Jeremiah 18 verses 7 through 10? Jay, if you can read that for me. Sorry, yeah, he's... Uh, can you read in this light? Yeah. All right. Amen. All right, so what's he saying? He says, look, I've, if I've got a prophecy against the nation, I'm going to destroy this, I'm going to uproot it, I'm going to get rid of it, but they repent, what will he do? He will, he will relent, and he will not do what he has said he is going to do. So God makes conditional prophecies. We also find he says it the other way around in that very same chapter. He says, If I've determined to do good to a nation and then they do evil, he says, I won't do the good that I promised to do. So why is it that Jesus has not come before now? Why why is it that Jesus has not come before now? Yes, Kevin. Well, because, because he is waiting for a people whose lives will demonstrate his perfect holiness before the universe. Amen. So in other words, G, there are some things that, have, that are based on conditions connected with us before Jesus will come. Do you agree with that? I mean, does the gospel have to go to all the world? 
does God's glory have to be shown in the loud, loud cry? Absolutely. So before these things can come to pass, uh, it is dependent on our response. It is conditional on our response. And so Jesus would have come before now. And we'll cover that one in the next lecture as well. 1 Samuel 2, verse 30 and 31, uh, similar kind of thing. 1 Samuel uh, chapter 2, verse 30 and 31. Someone want to read that for us, Camille? 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 30 and 31. It says, Therefore the Lord God of Israel says, I said indeed that your house and the house of your father will walk before me forever. But now the Lord says, Far be it from me, those who honor me I will honor, and those who despise me shall, I shall be lightly esteemed. For behold, the days are coming that I will cut off your arm Okay, so what, is, what did the Lord say first? Did you pick that up? There was, I said this before and I said it indeed, but now I tell you something different. Does God, does God have the ability to change things if we change? Yes. Absolutely. And so if God says, you know, I'm coming quickly, but we're not ready, is He going to come quickly? <laughs> you know, it's... It's dependent on our response. So we have a similar one in Second Chronicles 34, verse 28, a prophecy is given. Later on, the Lord uh, takes a different route because of their response. We won't go into it now. All right. So prophetic accuracy. Was Ellen White accurate? Did Ellen White predict, for instance, that San Francisco would suffer a terrible calamity? Did she? Anybody know? Absolutely. 1905? That calamity happened. She goes through the city afterwards. She says, if only they had listened. And so um, it's, uh, you know, it did occur exactly the way she said it would. Did Ellen White predict that the North would win in the Civil War? Yes, she did. Now, some people try and explain that way. Well, a lot of people were expressing those general sentiments. The fact is, she didn't say the South would win. Right? If she had said the South would win and she had been proved wrong, we would have all said, all right, not a prophet. But she said the North would win. And when she said that, the South was on the verge of winning. Exactly. The time in which she, she said it, uh, it was very clear that it was the North uh, that was under fire at that point. So was she accurate from science, from history? Absolutely. We believe in the prophetic accuracy of Ellen White. What about... Biblical faithfulness. This is what she herself says. Great Controversy, page 7. The Holy Scriptures are to be accepted as an authoritative, infallible revelation of His will. They are the standard of character, the revealer of doctrines, and the test of experience. Does this sound like anybody who's downplaying the Bible? Not at all. Not at all. God will have a people on the earth to maintain the Bible and Ellen White only as the standard of all doctrines. Are you, are you awake? <laughs> all right. No, not at all. She says, the Bible and the Bible only as the standard of all doctrines. Wow, we are competing with uh, the music. You know, I had to be next to him in the last seminar I was in at GYC. All right. But it was a relationship, so people were listening well. Joseph Smith claimed his information was superior to the Bible. We never find that in Ellen White. Joseph Smith claimed in Mormonism that the Bible was had a lot of mistakes, was very fallible, and we never find that occurring in Ellen White. 
In our time, she says, there is a wide departure from the doctrines and precepts, and there is a need of return to the great Protestant principle, the Bible and the Bible only as the rule of faith and duty. So, biblical faithfulness, absolutely. Does she exalt Jesus? I cannot think of anyone who exalts Him more. This is what she says, Gospel Workers, page 160. Lift up Jesus, you that teach the people. Lift Him up in sermon, in song, in prayer. Let all your powers be directed and pointing souls, confused, bewildered, lost to the Lamb of God. How many of you have read through Desire of Ages? Okay, most here. When I read the section on the Garden of Gethsemane, I wept. Have you you had that experience? I wept because I saw Jesus Christ for the first time. I was not an Adventist. I came from a non-Adventist home. When I read the book Desire of Ages, it was hard going at first because I didn't know that language and I had to get into it. But as I started reading, it was as if scales fell from my eyes. I saw Jesus Christ in a way I'd never seen Him before. I read the section on the Garden of Gethsemane and my heart was moved to tears. You know what I'm talking about? This is not ordinary book. This took me to the throne of God. It wasn't the messenger. It was the message that changed me. You understand? So uh, just powerful. And you look at all of these books, Steps to Christ, Christ Object Lessons, uh, The Mount of Blessings, all of these Desire of Ages, as we've mentioned, all of these lift up Jesus as the center and the focus. You know, one of the most powerful books are written, The Desire of Ages, uh, even though we have to admit some of it was Borrowed, and we're going to deal with that in the next section from other authors. It's the way she phrased it. It's the, there was an originality of thought, even though she may have used some snippets of language from others in order to express the ideas. We'll come to that in the next section. Did she keep the commandments? Did she point others to the commandments? Absolutely. She pointed them to Jesus. She pointed them to the commandments. Her own life was a model of faithfulness. Did Ellen White get rich off of this message? Was she living in some mansion when she died? How many of you have gone out to Elmshaven? All right, quite a few of you. Is that a big house? You know, it's a moderate-sized house. It's where she had various people staying with her. At any time in her life, Ellen White's house was packed with people. She had them come in. She died a pauper. In fact, she died in debt. Some people use that as an argument against her. They say, look, she spoke against debt, but she died in debt. She knew that she had enough royalties coming in from her books that it would cover the debt. But she died without a penny to her name. I mean, she gave everything away, everything that she had. Her life was one of unselfish giving. She not only kept the letter of the law, she kept the commandments, but she kept the spirit of the law, a spirit of love, a spirit of care for others. She would take kids into her home, look after them. She took them in as her own children. She wrote these beautiful letters to people. She cared about people. This is somebody who kept not only the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law. All right, physical tests. How are we doing for time? We're almost there. Physical tests. Uh, Let's take a look at at Ellen White. We're going to come to this one in the next section again. We have eyewitness descriptions of what Ellen White's visions were like. And to me, this is what really helps me to believe in Ellen White because this could not have been anything other than supernatural. When she would go into vision, 
she would normally start out with three words. What were they? Glory. And uh, it would start out loudly, glory. And then it would sound further away, glory. And then a little further away, glory. And she would go into this vision and she would immediately lose physical strength. Her eyes would be open, but not a vacant stare. Any of you ever dealt with demon possession? Yes, it's a very frightening thing. They have this kind of penetrating stare at you. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a combination of a glazed look, and it's as if they're looking right at you but through you, and it's kind of glazed. You can tell that A plus does not equal B in their heads. But in Ellen White, she would be taken off. Her eyes would be open, but she would, they would just kind of drift. Her eyes would just drift from one side to another, and as if she was looking at different things, but she was obviously not looking at a person. She was in vision. You understand what's happening here? So she's in vision. She's not demonically possessed or anything else. Her eyes are looking intently but shifting as if she's looking at different things. Her eyes are just moving gently. She loses initial strength, but eventually she regains strength and she starts moving about the room very gracefully. And when someone would try and stop her, like if you try and hold my arm like that, they would try and stop her and she would be so strong they could not stop her. She just had this supernatural strength at that time, uh, period in time. That's why she could hold up, you, you know the famous story, hold up a Bible. And uh, if, if, if you want to try this, you go to one of the places where they either have the Bible or a sample Bible, and you hold it out for a while. It's extremely heavy. She could stand there for an hour or more and hold that Bible out. And she would turn to pages, and she would read the text, even though she's not looking at it. She would just turn to the correct page and read a text but not be looking at it. Something supernatural was going on here. You understand what I'm saying? So some people say, well, Ellen White, it was all a pretend game. There is no way it could just be a pretend game because there was such supernatural evidence of something going on here. Now, the question that I would have is, do these physical evidences match what happened with Balaam, what happened with Saul on the road to Damascus, what happened with Daniel, doesn't match these things. Loss of physical strength, eyes being opened but staring straight ahead, no breath in the body. They would put a candle right up to her mouth, and as she was breathing, uh, or as should have been breathing, the candle should have flickered, but it didn't. So they knew there was no breath. There's several physical doctors would come up and, and kind of examine her. I don't, you know, this is kind of a strange thing. You know, here she is in vision and everybody's poking her and testing her. But they wanted to see, is this really true? And they'd walk away going, something phenomenal is going on here. They didn't understand it. She had vitality, she had pulse, but she was not breathing, just like the biblical prophets. And then lastly, her life. Everything about her life, everything that's been built up in the Adventist church uh, has indicated how she gave herself unreservedly for the care of others. The mission work, uh, what we, how we care for people in foreign lands, the gospel work that's gone to the world. Everything indicates that Ellen White's life, the result of it, has been to the glory of God. So, so when you look at her life, this is not... You know, somebody who gave us a bad example. Everyone who knew her said what an incredible example she was. Just a few statements to close. Uh, St. Uh, Helena, California Star Magazine, the time of her death. Of course, she died right there. Her death marks the calling of another noted leader in religious thought 
and whose almost 90 years were filled to overflowing with what? Good deeds, kind words, and earnest prayers for all mankind. Here is a notable record from the New York City Independent in the year that she died. Here is a notable record, and she deserved great honor. She showed no spiritual pride, and she sought no filthy lucre. She lived the life and did the work of a worthy prophetess. I don't think you'd get that from the New York City Independent today. Uh, Paul Harvey and you... What's that? You wouldn't find eulogies like no. that. No. You find a lot of other uh, testimonies about Joseph Smith. Uh, Paul Harvey broadcast, and you probably heard of this. Of course, his wife was connected with Adventism. Women have been honored on American postage stamps for more than 100 years, starting with one woman who is not an American, Queen Isabella in 1893. Since then, 86 women have been honored, ranging from Martha Washington to Marilyn Monroe. Also many woman authors like Louisa May Alcott and Emily Dickinson. But I can name an American woman author, he says, who's never been honored thus, though her writings have been translated into 148 languages, more than Marx or Tolstoy, more than Agatha Christie, more than William Shakespeare. Only now is the world coming to appreciate her recommended prescriptions for optimal spiritual and physical health. Ellen White, you don't know her? Get to know her. And uh, so on a national broadcast, that's quite something. Even James Dobson, uh, I don't know that he feels the same way today, but uh, he was sent this in earlier years, and this is what he wrote back. He, He was sent some Ellen White books. I greatly appreciate your sharing Ellen G. White's material with me. I have all of her books. They are excellent. If she were alive today, she and I would no doubt share a kindred spirit. I don't think you'd say it today. But it's interesting, before his prejudices kicked in, this is how he felt about her. Prejudices. You know, before his misconceptions about who she was and and so on. When when he just read her, he said, this is remarkable. I would hold on to her. We're going to share some other things later later on, but I'd encourage you to go to whiteestate.org, Ellen White Defend, ellen-white.com, and ellenwhiteanswers.org to get some more answers. And uh, you might have some things on great controversy. Yes, uh, yes. actually, I was going to mention um, some of you may be familiar with a book that, uh, several books that have been written by an author uh, by the name of Graham Bradford from Australia. Um, I have written an eight-part review of his arguments against Ellen White that you can find on the homepage of greatcontroversy.org. It's probably one of the most comprehensive uh, replies to criticisms of Ellen White, at least that I've ever seen. Well, thank you, folks. Uh, if you have any questions, feel free to come and ask me those questions. We will be taking a lot more questions in the next two sessions. I just wanted to lay a biblical foundation. Let's stand for prayer. Father God, There are not answers to every question that we have. But I want to thank you, Lord, that you have given us the gift of prophecy. Right at the end of times, we know that in the remnant church, the testimony of Jesus would exist. And that testimony is the spirit of prophecy. So, Lord, we pray that the spirit of prophecy will continue to reign to guide our church, to direct us onto the right path. The devil has taken the best thing that we've got and aimed his darts at that. Help us not to give in, 
but to stand forth with the Bible and to say, yes, Lord, we believe in the gift you've given us. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.